Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Even though I'm talking to you about talking to the victim and getting the best evidence, I'm not their best friend and I I can't get emotionally involved. We have a very special Australian true crime for you this week because it's the very first in a new series called the Narelle Fraser Conversations. Of course, as a detective, Narelle was very skillful. A lot of varies, I know, but she was very skillful when it came to getting information out of people in the interview room. So we suggested she try her hand at interviewing some members of the law enforcement community for the podcast. She came up with a fantastic list of people, some of whom are old friends and colleagues of hers, and some, like today's guest, are people she doesn't know personally, but whose work she's long admired. Of course, it doesn't take long for people to feel they've known Narelle their entire lives and to tell her their innermost thoughts. It's how many of them ended up in jail. But she's using her talent for entertainment value now, so without further ado, I'll hand you over to Narelle to introduce her wonderful guest. How did a wild, rebellious young teenage girl, expelled from school at 15, married at 18, a mother of three by the time she was 23, struggling to make ends meet, become one of Victoria's first female Crown prosecutors, the first head of the Specialist Sex Offence Unit at the Office of Public Prosecutions, to finally be given the honour of being appointed a QC, a Queen's Counsel. For anyone who needs some inspirational motivation to keep applying for jobs when you just keep getting those knockbacks, when the career that you've set your heart on and your mind on isn't going to plan, I'll give you a tip. Go and grab a coffee and have a listen to my first ever guest on 
the Narelle Fraser Conversations. Allow me to introduce you to Michelle Williams. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks very much, Narelle. Wow, that's a, a great introduction. Um, <laughs> I like to think I'm still that young, rebellious girl, perhaps a bit older. <laughs> <laughs> well, and achieved a few things along the way, but uh, uh, just a few, Michelle. Yeah, <laughs> just thank a you. few. I thought we might start with your early years. Could you just give us a little bit of background about those early years? I suppose I really had a very uneventful, normal childhood. You know, I didn't come from a legal family, which is sometimes the normal path for where I ended up. No, I had played in the street as a kid, which is what we did in those days. All the local kids played together. I went to the local state school. I went to the local high school. I suppose I I really did love school in the early years. Believe it or not, I was actually a good athlete. I was a, a good runner. And I had, probably flowing from that, a pretty competitive spirit. Mm hmm My mother used to say, you've got the most determined mouth I've ever seen. (laughs) So I guess the early days showed some determination and, um, yeah, maybe that's one of the qualities I brought to be able to do what I did. Ultimately, I was expelled from school and I went to work for a couple of years. I met my uh, then-husband when I was 16, got married at 18. And it wasn't really until I... Yeah, very young, Mm. yeah. Mm. But you know what? I wouldn't have it any other way. I think it turned out to be fantastic in the end because my my children are my best friends. So, How many kids have you got? I've got three Mm -hmm. and six grandchildren. But, you know, the fact is that it wasn't until I had them that I started to think, what am I going to do? I, I, I do want to educate them. And they were the motivating factor. So mm-hmm. I wanted to put them through school because we didn't have any money. We, you know, <laughs> things were. What a bit did your husband tough. do at eighteen? Gee, that's a lot of responsibility for an eighteen-year-old yeah, to be married, and yeah. then you've got what is it? Three kids by yeah. the time, like within five years. Yeah, he was three years older than me. He was twenty-one <laughs> mm-hmm. when we were married, and he hadn't finished his studies. But he went on to he went on to do night school. I oh, mean, I can remember the the years, you know, making him um, butter and Vegemite on saladas for dinner because we really couldn't afford much. He'd go off to night school. He he got qualified as an accountant. He went into the finance area. And, you know, things did pick up over the years financially. But at the time that I decided to go back to school, so I went to night school for two years. With three kids? Had two at that stage and then became pregnant with the third one in the second year of night school. So were you breastfeeding? I was I was uni? breastfeeding yes. I was breastfeeding the third one Gosh. when I started uni and one at school, one at kinder, breastfeeding the third one and three kids and breastfeeding, that's not enough for you, not enough of a challenge. You just <laughs> felt you needed something else. Yeah. Well yeah, I can I, see I, that. I guess so. I guess my mother was right about that determined mouth. So <laughs> yeah, I needed the challenge. And the challenge though changed along the way. The challenge was and the purpose changed. So although, in a way, they dovetailed, I'll explain what I mean by that. So I wanted to be a teacher. That's what I wanted to do because mm-hmm. I felt that that would really dovetail into being a mother and having the hours that, mm-hmm. although teachers today might disagree with that, but yep. it was deemed to be an occupation that would sit in or fit it would in. suit your lifestyle. Yeah, mm-hmm. with a family lifestyle. So that was yep. that was the idea. When I'd finished night school, I applied for all these teachers' positions, you know, at various colleges. And in those days, you had to fill in eight spots. You had to fill in the hole mm-hmm. in your application. You had to fill them all in from the top to the last. Mm-hmm. And I, I had them all filled in, but I didn't have... I didn't have actually the top one. I didn't know what to put in. I'd mm-hmm. run out of options. Ideas, yep. yeah. So I I put in arts law. So it was that stroke of a pen that really that changed your life. That changed my life. Yeah. So for those people, you know, maybe students, kids, families, you know, you, you don't necessarily freak out if your child hasn't got the best. Marks, you know, there are always other ways to to come at it, and I I personally think 
these days too much emphasis is put on that. Mm-hmm. A lot of emphasis is put on children who don't know what they want to do. They mm-hmm. haven't got a clue. So there is another path or can be another path, mm. mind you. But you, sometimes you've got to go looking for that path, don't you? Like yeah. sometimes those paths don't just appear. You've, you've yeah. got to make a yeah. bit of an effort, don't you? Look, I couldn't agree more with that. Mm. It does. Things don't just land on your lap necessarily. Mm. You do mm. have to go looking and you have to... You've got to show a bit of... Initiative. Um, initiative, don't you? Yeah. yeah, and make choices, you know, make decisions. Yeah. You know, as I say, I was on the path to becoming a teacher. That never eventuated. And I took a completely different path. I thought I'd give myself two years at Monash. I used to trundle out there with my Volkswagen. I'd drop off the youngest one at my mother-in-law, breastfeeding her before before I left the others, school, kinder, so on. So really, also what you're saying there, Michelle, is that it wasn't an easy path. No. You had to organise things. You you had all this other stuff going on, but you obviously became passionate about well, you started to really like law and you had to work hard yeah. at it. Not so much the law itself, but everything around you. Would that be right? Oh, absolutely. And it became a challenge for me. I thought I'd give it two years. I discussed it with um, my mother and my mother-in-law in particular. By that stage, my then-husband wasn't too keen on any of this Do you have to pout all. your lips when you talk about <laughs> your... My then-husband. Oh, I know. I shouldn't do that. Oh, look, we now get on and I don't really see him. I never repartnered. He's remarried twice, so that tells you a story in itself anyway. I don't know if we've got time for that. No. (laughs) That's a whole different path. Yeah. Yeah, look, he he, he wasn't particularly supportive. He, He saw all this as if you like, loss of control of me as things yes. Yes. as the years went on. Yes. And so what I learnt to do is I learnt to seg- segregate my life. I used to have, I even had what I used to call my uni clothes and my mother-wife clothes and then, as it turned out, wife of the businessman-type clothes, executive <laughs> clothes. So, you know, became a bit of a split personality maybe, I don't know. And, you know, that might be why you were able to manage such a stressful career because you learned to compartmentalise things, whereas I couldn't, and I think that's where I fell down. But this isn't about me today, unfortunately. This is about you. So I've got to keep on track with you, Michelle. So, But, but Narelle, I think you're exactly right in, in that. I, I did learn to, if you like, separate segregate. Seg- yep. segments of my life. Mm. And what I like to think is I devoted a lot of time to, to both. It is very difficult these days. I wanted to be a stay-at-home mum. I wanted to do that. That's what I chose to do. Mm. So at the same time, I chose to study, go back, get educate myself. So the study part of it necessarily happened late at night mm. and I learnt for that not to interfere in the mm-hmm. mother, as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. And as the children got older... You know, they're at school, longer hours, that sort of mm. stuff. I would study during the day if I wasn't at uh, at uni. So, oh, my, take my hat off to you. So, let's get on to your career in law, which is pretty unbelievable. Can you remember one of your first trials, a matter that you prosecuted? Can you remember being terribly nervous like I imagine you would be? Because you are up in front of everybody, yeah, and it almost yeah. like. It's all up to you. Yeah, I think in many ways I never lost that nervousness, but I think what happens is you learn to harness it, you Mm. learn to work with it. So how did you harness it? Because (laughs) Yeah, I think you just, you know, you do become attuned to it. Look, Mm. I remember when I first started, my hands used to shake. So I got (laughs) to the stage, and this is when I was, you know, very, very junior Mm -hmm. uh, before I became a Crown Prosecutor, and you'd be wanting to tender a, a document <laughs> and your, your hand would be shaking. And so I tried not doing that. I tried to think of another way. How am I going to do this? <laughs> you learn to conquer your nerves and you... And how did you learn that? I think by practice. You know, sometimes that was a difficult part of doing... Well, I think every barrister faces this, just learning to get over the nerves, learning to... And that's by experience, by mm-hmm. practice, mm-hmm. by... And for me, it was about 
absolutely about preparation. I was just going to say, knowing your brief and knowing everything that you can so that whatever they throw at you, you're not underneath your dog paddling and trying to keep above water, that you know it's so well your case that you can just... Throw anything at me and I'll be able to handle it. Is That's that... right. And so I used to be confident that mm-hmm. I knew my case better than anyone mm-hmm. in the courtroom, including the judge, defence counsel, mm-hmm. maybe except for the police who had charged the, the person. But mm-hmm. for me, it was about making the case come to life, particularly for a jury. So... You know, the bulk of my career were jury trials and Mm -hmm. the bulk of that um, prosecuting murder trials. So, you know, there was a real incentive for victims, the family, to ensure that I was doing the best job I possibly could do. And I loved the work, so I was pretty You're in your element. I was in my element, yeah. Can you tell us about you... Uh, mostly did murder trials. Yeah. Is there one that sticks out in your mind? I suppose there are a number that stick in my mind, and for different reasons. I mean, Peter Dupas, I prosecuted him twice. I prosecuted him first in 2004, and then I prosecuted him for a murder of a woman called Margaret Maher, and then I prosecuted him some years later for the murder of Messina Halvagas and that was a retrial and that matter does stick in my mind in particular because it had been an investigation that had gone on for quite some time and then there'd been a retrial and so for the Halvagas family it was extremely rewarding to get a guilty verdict after so long. Would you mind just going into a little bit about who Margaret Maher was, what happened, and a little bit about Messina as well? Because George Messina's father has become a great advocate for victims, hasn't he? He has. But a lot of people won't get the connection. So would you mind going through that for us? The time I was prosecuting Margaret Maher, there had already been a trial of the murder of a woman by the name of Nicole Patterson. And so Peter Dupas was Mm. charged with Mm -hmm. that murder. And it was a particularly... I did not prosecute that one, but it was a particularly brutal murder. And by the time I prosecuted Margaret Ma, which actually she was murdered before Nicole Patterson, Mm -hmm. if you can follow the sequence. Margaret Ma was a prostitute. She was found dead on the roadside on a highway. Nicole Patterson, in terms of her murder... She had had two breasts removed. She'd been stabbed many, many times. It was in her home, wasn't it? It was in her yep. home. She was a psychologist and Peter Dupas had got her phone number and he ended up going to her address and pretended to want to see her. Mm. So he had had no connection with her. So she was a person who he sought out mm-hmm. to kill and killed in a really brutal manner. It was a signature, what we call a signature, and it happens very rarely in the legal world that you can rely on that signature. So when I prosecuted Margaret Maher, she had one breast removed. So the unusual method of killing, Mm. bearing in mind the case was, who did this to Margaret Maher? Who was the killer? Mm. What we call identification. Who was it? We know how she's killed. Her body was located and there was some relatively small amount of DNA found at the scene. Peter Dupas' DNA was located just a short distance from the scene. But the really telling evidence was the removal of the Mm. breast. So when we got to trial for the Margaret Maher matter, I led the evidence of the Nicole Patterson matter. Because it was so similar. It was so Mm. similar, Mm. so strikingly similar. And we also led evidence of, in the world, let alone Australia, how unusual this was. Mm. So pretty rare to Mm. get... I was going to say, did they allow it? Very, very rare. It'd be one of, uh, well, it's the only case or one of the very few cases... uh, uh, as far as I know, in existence, where the proof of one murder 
you lead evidence of mm. another murder. Mm. And the whole reason for that is to prove that it's the same person that mm-hmm. did it. That's the connection between it. And did they allow that in evidence? It was allowed, yes, mm-hmm. it was allowed in evidence and was held on appeal that it was admissible. So mm. we, we held that conviction. So I, I first met George the Halvagas when I was prosecuting Peter Dupas in 2004 for the murder of Margaret Marr. George was sitting in the courtroom. This is in the magistrate's court at this stage. So for the listeners who may not know, at first instance you have at the moment what they call a committal process to see if there's sufficient evidence for the matter to go to trial. And we were at that stage of the legal process, so a number of witnesses being called. And George was just there. He, Someone pointed him out to me and I sort of I nodded at some stage during a break and he nodded back. And I think it was on day two <laughs> that I approached him and, you know, was very short. I understand you're George Halvagas. I'm Michelle Williams. Pleased to meet you. And there on in, I think we had a very mutual respect for each other. So he would often be at many trials that I did. He would often be at court. And I'd often see him, you know, crossing Lonsdale Street and we'd, you know, he'd yeah. say, hello, darling, how are you? <laughs> I'd say, I'm, I'm good, George, how are you? And the thing about George, George is, if you go back to what happened, George was also, had also followed the Nicole Patterson trial. And at that point in George's life and his family's life, Peter Dupas had not been charged but ultimately was for the murder of George's daughter, Messina Halvagas. So, George, you know, I don't think it's too high to say he was haunted at that time. He was extremely sad. He was traumatised. So for him to have a connection and to try and follow other cases that were going on became a very important part of his life. and Maybe a, not a healing, I mean, you'd never get over it, but maybe just to help him manage. It was just a, yes. a way yes. that he yes. used. And in the, in the background, he was also asking the police and the Director of Public Prosecutions at the time, what's happening, what's happening? Is Peter Dupas going to be charged with the murder of his daughter? Did he know that Dupas had done Yes, we. it was well known, uh, well, with us, with the, the prosecutors, that Peter Dupas was suspected, but there wasn't sufficient mm-hmm. evidence to charge him. Mm-hmm. So that added to the trauma mm. that George lived through and also why I really respected George because in the whole time I knew him, he never interfered in any of the cases. Mm. He never so he conducted to. himself, you know, really, really well, knowing that, that Peter Dupas had killed Messina. Peter Dupas was charged and I didn't do the first trial, but there was a retrial. It went all the way to the High Court, but I did the the second trial and again... Why was a retrial ordered? Oh, the, there was a retrial ordered because it was said, there were a couple of different reasons. It was said that the judge hadn't given the sufficient identification warning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. When it came back on, I was privy to the first trial, the transcript and everything, Mm. but I believe we actually got it up better in the second trial for some reason. It just seemed to work better. It worked better. Flow, I suppose. For me, when I'm prosecuting, I've got to be able to see it in my head. Yes. I've got to be able to visualise it. So I do a lot of work with interviewing, conferencing witnesses, Mm -hmm. always with my police and my instructing Mm -hmm. solicitor because I want them to be prepared. And there's, I want to make it clear, there's a big difference between conferencing your witnesses and coaching your witnesses. You don't do that, but you have statements of what they're going to say. Mm. So in order for them to understand who I am and for me to understand who they are and to get the best evidence, in every case I did, I spent a lot of time conferencing witnesses, going to the crime scene. The detectives took me out to the cemetery. I was able to, they'd point out to me in the case of 
Messina Hill Vargas, you know, where because she had been murdered at, at her grandmother's cemetery mm-hmm. and stabbed to death in a most brutal way. Mm. So for me, it was really important. I need to see this. And because we had a number of witnesses from the cemetery, I needed to be able to visualise where they were at a particular point, what they could see and so on. Would most people do that? Would most people in your position, to me, with my experience with trials, which is nothing compared to you, but I can't remember anybody doing that with a case of mine. Yeah. Look, I think some did, perhaps not as much as what I did. Some don't at all. Those who don't think, well, it's just purely an objective exercise for them and they, I guess, don't get... Well, I got much more involved in my cases. That's the way I would put it. I, yeah. For and me... Were you, were you, was, it, was that a um, criticism by your colleagues? Like, oh, you're getting too involved? No, I don't think that was no. ever said because and when we say too involved, there is a balance to all this. So you can't mm. get subjectively involved because then mm. you lose what mm. you're trying to mm. do. So it's mm. really about... For me, it was about... What had happened, sure, I can read that in the brief of evidence. I know that. I understand Mm. that. But Mm. I need to visualise it. Mm. So that was something that was important to me because when I open to the jury, I'm telling them what happened. Mm. For me to tell them what happened, I have to see it. Mm. I have to understand it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I have to make it come to life. Mm. I have to let them see it and hear it as well. So it was very important for me. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you to the following patrons who help us keep going in these strange and challenging times. Alicia Vicker, Will Hearth, Crystal Wilson, Ali Johns, Lisa Knight, and Kate Smith. Coming up on the Narelle Fraser Conversations, she and Michelle discuss the very controversial topic of women's safety. But first, their shared passion. You spend a lot of time with the victim. I think that is just so admirable because then it's hard enough for a victim to go into a court, let alone a court where there is a jury and all these people with the wigs and, you know, it's all very officious looking. And I know we do a lot now to help the victim feel a lot more at ease. But I would think that by you spending time with the victim, not only does the victim get to know you better and feel more comfortable with you, but would I be correct in saying that you would get to know the victim and you would think he or she, they're going to go really well with this particular bit and they're not going to, 
you know, they might struggle a bit here. You get to know each other's nuances, I suppose. Yeah. Look, I think there's two. There's a couple of aspects to that. Bearing in mind with the murder trials, obviously the victims are deceased, but I'm dealing with their <laughs> family. Of sex offences. Yeah. You're right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. But, okay. But, so you don't speak to the dead. Yeah. You don't, don't speak to the. Well, yeah. you do. Know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mind you, it was murder trials. You know, of course, it wasn't the only work I did, and uh, and sex offenders in sex offences, of course, you would. Yeah. And they. In that case, they are a witness as well. So yeah. they they form, you know, go into that category, if you like, where they're both a traumatised mm. victim, but they're a witness. And so yeah. they have to give evidence yes. about the most graphic things that yes. have happened to mm. them. Mm. And in recent years, yes, we've made a lot of inroads in, into the process. I think mm. there's more that can be done mm. in making the process better for mm. victims and uh, and more efficient for some victims to be cross-examined, you know, not once but twice, I think is archaic mm. and that is still occurring. And when I say twice, at the committal, in the committal process, if they're an adult victim mm. and in mm. and at the trial, but yep. but look, in those cases, absolutely, mm. you, I had to. And did and spend a lot of time conferencing the victims. I never did it on my own because I never wanted it levelled at me that I had somehow or other mm. worded the victim up who was a witness. Yes. So you always had your my solicitor with me and what I called my team. Mm. So yeah. Yeah. My, my solicitor, my informant, who's the detective who's yep. investigated the case, yep. and if I had a junior, my junior. So we would work as a team. And, yes, we would, in the case of, for example, as we're talking about sex offences, was really important for that victim to have trust in me. Oh, yes, very much so. And, and, I, and I've got to say that I do apologise because most of my offences that I have gone to trial with were alive and, yeah, you know, yeah. they were sex yeah. victims of, a you know, horrific sexual assaults, whereas yeah. you were talking about a murder and, of course, you don't get to speak to them. So I do yeah. apologise for that. Oh, but, that's, yeah, no, but, but I'll come back to that in a minute because mm. it is, you know, important to clarify that as well. But... Yeah, really important for the victims of sexual assault. Oh, very much. To yep. for them to trust me, but you know that's a double-edged sword. So I used to, I used to always say to them, "Look, I'll do my best. I don't make any promises, but you know we're going to talk about this now. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk so that I can get." the best evidence from you. Mm -hmm. I've got a copy of your statement in front of me. Mm -hmm. I want to take you through some of those things so that I know that you can actually verbalise this because there are many victims who couldn't. Mm. They're right. so traumatised they actually yeah. couldn't speak. And it was hard enough for them to do the statement exactly. in front of one person, exactly. let alone yeah. a jury. Yeah. Mm. So And all these strangers. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and sometimes I used to say to them, look, I, I'll be, I'm telling you, I I'm being selfish about this. I want to win this case. Mm. So I need to get the best evidence from you. So come mm. on, let's just... So, you know, it was that type of conference, mm. I guess. From my point of view, it helped me to get the best evidence from them and therefore to make the best case that I could. You know, that's very similar. When I used to... I took a lot of statements from sexual assault victims, from rape victims. Yeah. And I used to do the same thing. I yeah. used to put myself in the position. Not everyone can because no. it gets very, you can get yeah. terribly involved in it and not see yes. the wood for the tree sort of. But yes. I used to put myself in the position of the victim. And if she said she was down a laneway and it was really dark, I would actually put myself there and I'd say things like, um, uh, I'd think to myself, is it dark? What can yes. I see? Yeah. How am I feeling? That's right. And I think I took a better statement that way because I could put myself in that position. So you're saying exactly the same yes. thing in yep. your position. You yep. would go to the scene and yes. uh, look, yep. just on while we're talking about uh, Dupas or whoever for that matter, you must have prosecuted in situations where you didn't like, you loathed, you despised an accused person, I imagine. So how did you deal with those feelings? Because it's very hard, isn't it, to not show in some way how much you despise somebody like Peter Dupas? Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting question because a bit like parallel in a way, you may not think of it this way, 
is with the victim as well Mm -hmm. because I, even though I'm talking to you about talking to the victim and Mm -hmm. getting the best evidence, I'm not their best friend and I I can't get emotionally involved because then I can't do my job. Yes. (laughs) And so the same I would put it, albeit for different reasons, Mm. you know, you... I never really thought, do I hate the accused or not hate the accused? I mean, I hate what what he's done. Mm. And when I say he, it was mainly, mainly mm. has been mainly mm. men. Mm. I hate what they've done. So it wasn't, it's never really been an emotion that's troubled me. Gee, I, uh, that is amazing because I think looking back, I think that was one of maybe my issues is that I did become, I tried not to become emotionally involved, but I used to, particularly in response to, say, a, a sexual assault victim, oh, sometimes I just wanted to put my arms around them and say... I am so sorry, you know. Yeah. And then you do become emotionally attached. And with offenders, I actually wanted to get into their head to understand why they did this certain thing. And that is becoming uh, like I am, I'm not being able to compartmentalise it, whereas what you're saying is you could, and maybe that's the secret as to why I got PTSD and you're as good as gold. <laughs> well, maybe you know? I do. I have it as well. I just don't know it. <laughs> Uh, look, yeah, there's a lot of what you say is is accurate and I can understand that, but I don't want to create the wrong impression. I can mm-hmm. tell you with Peter Dupas, I did a lot of homework on him yes. before I prosecuted him. I, I got every bit of history. Mm-hmm. I got old files, old matters. Mm-hmm. I went into, as you say, to try and get into his head, but... I think the difference is I wasn't really trying to get into his head. I was really just trying to look at what he had done. I mean, there are many people who have very bad upbringings, mm-hmm. have bad experiences, and and that's something I'm really aware of mm-hmm. in the work I do now. And I can maybe which talk we will about touch that. on in a minute. Yep. Yeah. It sidetracks you a little bit. For me, it would sidetrack me. I needed to, I need to concentrate on what is the evidence I've got to prove mm. this case. And so, if you want to say hate or emotions or don't like or you know this is a despicable act, mm-hmm. yes, of course I mm-hmm. harness some of those things. Mm. But just harnesses. Well, it did for me anyway to make me want to do a better job. And the trick was for me to remain focused on what I was doing and what I can prove. Maybe my issue was that I tried to understand why somebody would do this, whereas clearly from what you're saying, you didn't actually try and understand it. What you were doing was just getting all the information and you were very uh, fact-focused. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think evidence, I'd I'd say evidence-focused. So when we use the word evidence, you know, what what is it that, what are the pieces of evidence which may be, you know, witnesses who get into the witness box, who give evidence, it may be DNA evidence, expert evidence, crime scene, crime scene photos. See, crime scene photos, that's another thing. I used to pore over the crime scene photos and or videos, so we would have the police who are investigating would take an, a number of photographs. The pathologists who would do the autopsy would take a number of mm. photographs. So, yeah, quite confronting, uh, many of those photographs. But for me, they always told me something. Mm-hmm. So I used to look at and examine each of, and every one of those in fine detail. And, in fact, I had one case where a, a very neat piece of evidence came up and that was mid-trial. I don't claim that I picked this up, actually, my instructor. <laughs> well, let's, let's claim it for <laughs> let's today. Let's claim it. I'll <laughs> pretend it was me. But um, we, we picked up, looking at one of the photographs with a magnifying glass, we picked up, it, was, it had to do with an accused was talking about having watched a TV show with his aunt in her home and then a apparently leaving, whereas our case was that he smashed her over the head a number of times with a hammer mm-hmm. and killed her. But when we looked with a magnifying glass, there was a newspaper there and we could see what date it was <gasps> open to. Wow. And so it was 
Yeah, it was a wow moment. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was yeah. a real wow moment. A so, sort of gotcha moment. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. And he was, uh, mm-hmm. well, not necessarily for that reason, but it was a, a nice piece of evidence mm-hmm. that we were able to get before the jury. That's very nice of you to say, a nice piece of evidence. That is, uh, that's huge. Really, isn't yeah. it, in the scheme of things? Yeah, it um, was, yeah. So you're talking about these photos, you know, that some of them were just so bad. Yeah. Did you ever look at any photos and it was like, oh, my God, I just did looking at photos of young women that had been uh, murdered and particularly, yes. you know, breasts cut off and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. How did you manage that? Well, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I didn't manage it. (laughs) No, uh, to be serious. I used to set aside a time to look at the photos. Mm -hmm. So I used to close my door in chambers Mm -hmm. and I would sit down by myself Mm -hmm. and look at the photos for quite a long time Mm -hmm. and sometimes then many times over. Mm -hmm. Of course, there were some that were very, very confronting. Mm -hmm. I mean, one case in particular that in that way does... Well, it stays with me in in Mm. the sense of I remember it. And this girl was a beautiful girl, early 20s, I think, from memory. She was a hairdresser. Mm. And she, like many other women, went out on a Saturday night. The problem was she never came home. Mm. So she went out with some other girlfriends and they had a few drinks. She apparently took half an ecstasy tablet. She wasn't a drug user. She was a gorgeous girl, but apparently some of them did do that or maybe still do that. She tried something a bit different. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, to be honest, that I was aware that some girls did that because they didn't want to drink, they didn't mm-hmm. want to put on weight, and so they would do that be- and they didn't want to pay the mm-hmm. cost. Mm-hmm. So sad as it is, it mm. was actually cheaper for her mm-hmm. to have half an ecky. Mm. And anyway, long, long story short, there was this fellow who was a drug user and had priors, you know, a mile long. Mm. And somehow or other, somebody put her in touch with him. The idea was that they were they were in Port Melbourne. Well, he wasn't, but she was there with other friends. She thought she was going to meet up with other friends. That didn't eventuate. She ended up going with him to a hotel in South Melbourne. And we had CCTV footage of them going into the hotel, mm. hotel motel, and they both looked fine. He had driven. He mm. looked fine. Mm. She looked fine. Mm. They were walking in. They were laughing. She was looking at her phone. Mm. She had been about 10 minutes later slashed to death in the most unimaginable ways ever. He smashed the mirror in the room. He slashed her with the shards of glass from the mirror. We think that she may have had her spinal cord severed but was still alive before he finished her off. Those photographs were horrific Mm. and looking at the scene. But prior to that, about to my my memory, maybe it was longer, maybe it was half an hour, but mm. it, wasn't a, it wasn't hours. They had gone in and we had CCTV footage of the guy at the motel, them signing in, mm. they looked fine. So he pleaded guilty in the end and oh. it was taken into account, his drug psychosis in terms of sentencing. But it was, it was just one of those... Yep. Absolutely needless, horrible, horrible outcomes for a girl who simply... And we've seen this many times, young women who who go out. You know, Jill Ma was uh, another one. I prosecuted many, unfortunately. So, yeah, it's a... I don't know what the answer is really currently for women... Once upon a time, I used to think we could all just, we're free. We're entitled to go out. We're entitled mm. to come home alive. Yep. We're entitled to walk Absolutely. in a park. Yep. We're entitled to walk down the street. But, and there is a but for me now with that, yes. I, I think in this day and age, 
you've got to protect yourself. Uh, mm. After Jill Maher, I had um, a number of junior prosecutors come to me because I think everybody felt really a bit traumatised by that. Could we just, just give me a brief rundown on Jill Maher? I didn't actually prosecute the case. She worked for the ABC. She was walking home, I think it was a Friday night after drinks in Brunswick. She'd been with some other people. She lived a very, very short distance away. And she was simply walking home. Mm. We've seen video footage of that. And she was brutally murdered and raped. So there was a lot of disquiet, I think it's fair to say, Mm. uh, and shock Mm. that this could happen. Because so many of us, I suppose, have been in that situation, uh, haven't we? Yes. Where we've been out for a night. Absolutely. You can't be bothered waiting for a taxi or whatever, and you think, I don't have far to go. Correct. That's, I think, the frightening thing about Jill Ma. That was the frightening Mm. thing. And Mm. because I was a senior woman in chambers, so some of the more junior prosecutors would come to me with issues or. And I remember a couple did over this, and one in particular said to me, Michelle, this could have been me. Yes. I Mm. live in a city. This Mm. could have been me. I've done this. And I said, yes, and so have I. Mm. We've all done it. Mm. We've all gone home, and we should be entitled to. Mm. But, and I keep using the but, (laughs) because we now live in a world where we know that's not the case that mm. we we've we've really got to try and protect ourselves and you know I said to this particular prosecutor well you know what are you going to do now you're not going to walk home you're going to give that taxi driver an extra twenty dollars to take you that short distance mm. I lived in South Melbourne for a while for quite a few years and in my early days sat the bar as as a barrister and you know we used to always go out on a Friday night have drinks I wasn't mm. far from home. Mm. So I think we all related to yes. what happened to Jill Ma, and that's why we're all in shock. Mm. Since then, it's unfortunately there have been a number of other cases. So just on that emotional side, so you had junior people coming to you to say, you know, God, that could have been me with Jill Ma, for instance. So yeah. what sort of emotional support do lawyers, solicitors, barristers, do you have a... Um, yeah, it's called so- Friday Night Drinks, <laughs> 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 where we unwind, we exchange stories, we support each other and, yep. you know, we – look, over the years, for me, that was the best way to mm. unwind. I know all the psychologists and all the, you know, the professionals would yes. say, oh, you shouldn't use alcohol and yep. – well, that's true and I don't – necessarily mean it in that way but to be surrounded by colleagues who understand you know what your case if you've spoken to them about your case and for me I developed quite good bonds with the detectives Mm. that I worked with because many of my cases would have gone for four weeks Mm. six weeks Mm. you're seeing them every day so at the end of a case we'd we'd often have a drink and socialise. But it's having that connection. For me, I also had my children as a support. Mm. I, I've got my brothers and sisters as well, but I probably chose not to speak to them as much mm. about my work. I would from time yeah. to time, but it just became part of my life again, maybe <laughs> mm. maybe separating yes. my work from yeah. family uh, to I, a large I do extent. Un- I, I do understand that because that was a real issue with me. To, for instance, to share the photos that you saw of the young girl yeah. in the yeah. hotel in South Melbourne, yeah. there's not many people apart from the people that you work with That's right. that you could really discuss that with. Exactly. And I found that yeah. I had so many issues that I couldn't talk about with anybody that in the end it just all boiled over, you know, with my PTSD. And I also think we used to have Friday night drinks as well. We used to have drinks back at the, you know, in the squads. But, and I understand why, but Christine Nixon, she stopped all that. Yes. And in my view, (laughs) what it did was it didn't give us anywhere. Doesn't give you the outlet. Correct. Yeah. Because whether, look, as I say, I preface this by saying, no, it's not a good idea to use alcohol as a yep. crutch. But, yes, at the end of a week when you're with your colleagues and you've got things in common, mm. you've got... And you um, can talk openly. And you can talk mm. openly because mm. that's the other issue with the work that I did, certainly the work you did as well, Narelle. You can't yep. you can't talk to... There's a, 
you know, no. there's not everybody you can talk no. to. You It's very and, few. And, and and sort of in a way you don't want to. I found I, yeah, I like to talk with people who understood. I know many people at the bar who have suffered, particularly defence counsel, I think, more than anything because they're perhaps operating more solely, whereas I was operating in a team of prosecutors and, and so on. So, But I do know many people who've had issues uh, and they've had to deal with it. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. Thank you to Narelle Fraser and Michelle Williams. And Michelle will be back for another conversation with Narelle in coming weeks. Thank you also to patrons Megan Ferguson, Nick, Jody Edwards, Jennifer Biles, Laura Nish and Alice Jenkins. We'll be back next week and until then, please take care and remember that everyone's going crazy in different ways, so try not to be too hard on each other or on yourself. Take care. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.